everyone. Thanks very much for coming in such a sunny day, but we're very pleased to see you all here. And welcome to this uh, masterclass for the replacement by Morgan Christie and uh, Vicky McClure um, about an architect who is feeling threatened by her maternity leave replacement and begins to suspect uh, much more sinister things are going on and uh, turns out there are. I um, hope that was a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it. <laughs> um, but I'm delighted to welcome today, we have the, the writer, Joe Ahern. Welcome, Joe. Hello. And uh, producer, Nicola Coverine. Coverine. Beautiful name. Um, so we're going to hear from them about the process, how they came up with the idea, the writing process, commissioning process, all the rest of it. It's interesting how the two of you came up with this idea. I, I thought it, this was just from you, Joe, but it was both of you. I'll take the credit wherever I can. Yes, but, um, <laughs> it came through a conversation that we were having, and Nicole was about to do a job. Um, she was going to be Paula, for want of a better um, Not quite like Paula. Not but, taking but, it all the <laughs> But to be, to be the replacement in a, in a job. We, we, we weren't really, I don't think we were pitching ideas or thinking of our next project. We were just chatting, and then um, I glommed on like a parasite, as I normally do to anything interesting, and said, oh, that sounds like a really good that idea. That might be an idea. Yeah, you you were stand, stand, standing in a, 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 so, so that this was all about that we thought there was something in there was the something there was something because what I said I think is um, well this this is going to be a fun job I might not want to give it up and I suppose one of the things that is fun to do is when you're thinking about drama is what if you know and then take any situation and kind of think well what if this well then how far can you possibly take a what if. I think originally we started because you were going to be in the replacement then I think we both thought actually it's more interesting for a drama if you're the paranoid person who is about to be replaced it felt like there was more mileage in that because yeah. there's a threat coming in rather than yes because it's know. such an insecure because it's such a wobbly time isn't it for a, for a woman when just as you know I think normally people have their kids when their careers are really taking off and then there's that strange thing about just when just as when when things start to happen for you professionally, there's this personal upheaval, and you have to have to deal with that sort of unique. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and while you, well, while I was watching it, and a, a lot of my friends, you're kind of moving your sympathies between Paula and uh, the other Ellen, character, yes. uh, Ellen back and forward was that something you I'm not <laughs> <laughs> my sympathies are always with uh, Morgan Christie but that's interesting so as a writer <coughs> you didn't see it like that no I mean only as that's and also that's even having done it that's my experience of watching it I think oh my god what a nightmare she's going through but I think because they're both such good actors and they're both trying to play as much of the truth as possible um, it becomes much more an even, even thing I'm, you know, it's, it's better this way for sure but I was a bit mystified when I read some response saying, oh my God, is Ellen the mad one? Is like, oh, bonkers. Obviously, this person, otherwise, there's no story unless this person That's is... That's because you're a man, you're not picking up possibly, all these scripts. Possibly. I mean, I, I find, you know, Ellen, it's, it's, it, I think it would be a pretty mad proposition if you were going to make a film. I mean, I, I read some, you know, people writing about it and some people were trying to predict where it was going to go and they were thinking, well, you know, is it going to turn out that... Paula is a fragment of Ellen's imagination, like Fight Club, and you're thinking, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? Did you wish that you thought of that? It was a pretty good idea, actually. <laughs> but talk, talk me through about the writing process. Um, you've collaborated together, or...? or yeah, we work on the story work? together, so, I mean, uh, uh, we meet as long, often as we can stand, and then I'll go away and write a treatment, and then she'll come and look at it and say... Bonkers, bonkers, bonkers. There's, the, yeah, well, or, or whatever. I, I tend to sometimes get a bit too wrapped up in what's going to happen next, and possibly tell me if I'm paraphrasing. Nicole will kind of pull me back to her and say, "No real human being would do that ever." <laughs> and so I'm <laughs> <laughs> Nicole, any examples? I, I think not. I think Joe's <laughs> really interested, as he should be, in what happens next, because I think that is any, any script, any film, any show. If it's not a, a total page turner, um, it's not going to get made, and it's not going to entertain you. So Joe will always be most interested in what will be the most interesting thing that could possibly happen now, mm -hmm. and sometimes the most interesting thing that can happen on page twelve can be contradicted in some way by the most interesting that thing that he writes. That happened on page 43 and then you're kind of thinking how do we square 
the character doing these two but things. But also I think there's a very particular gender thing, which is what it's like to have babies, which I know obviously bugger all about. Um, and there's a thing that happens with Ellen, for example, that for the story, to me it, wasn't, it wouldn't have been an interesting story if it was a woman who gets pregnant, is unreservedly delighted about it, and has a swimming pregnancy and is all marvellous. So it's got to be like <laughs> someone who's got some issues with having the pregnancy. So to me that's a drama. So all the stuff I'd be throwing in it would be Ellen having issues about certain aspects of the problem the pregnancy is causing for her. Mm-hmm. And Nicole, among many other people, would say, yeah, yeah, but can you please remind us occasionally that she doesn't want to have this baby <laughs> and it's not, you know, otherwise she, you know, she wouldn't yeah. have it. And in fact, I think quite late on in the process, when the, the scripts have been commissioned, or just before the commission, we're just about to get the green light, and um, one of the BBC people said, can we just do another pass just to show that, however you do it, don't care how you do it, that this person would be a good mother and you believe that you know, it, she is going to bond with her kid, and that's where. So the, was that the, the sister came exactly, in? Exactly, exactly. Very, very, very late. Right. Very late on, and it, it's, it's sort of an interesting solution because it solves some problems, but in fact, and um, you know, the Sarah McRae who played the sister, you know, fantastic actress. The scenes were all really good, but they were a little bit problematic in the edit because they didn't always further the story. And it's the flip side to what Nicole's yeah, saying, which absolutely. is that it, those, those things absolutely solve the problem of making. Ellen, a nice person because she likes her nieces and she does all that kind of stuff. So I think, yeah, yeah, she'd be a great mother. But they weren't forwarding the story. They were just illustrating the character. And so with the script, you've always, it's really hard. You've always got to get both. They've got to be scenes that you have to have for the plot and they help you understand the character. If it's just one or the other, it's not so good. Yeah. Did you have the actors in mind for this role? Nope. For these roles? So how, how, did, it, well, how did it come to be in, in Glasgow as well? And, and how did it come to be those well, actors? Joe didn't write a specific city when he wrote the script, so it could have been anywhere where you could have great architecture. I mean, that was an absolute. So, um, and then when we were green lit, there were we were going to do there are various options about where we were going to shoot. I don't think we really thought it would be easy to shoot in London because it's just not easy to shoot in London. And then um, it was mooted that we might shoot in Scotland. We thought that would be great because I'd worked here before. Um, and yeah, and Joe's worked here before, in fact, on a short film with Liz Lochhead. And we thought, where should we go? Be Edinburgh should be Glasgow, and we thought Glasgow is, you know, the the, the very hip city. So we'll do it there. It looked great. So that, I mean, we'll, 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 we'll talk about the, the locations um, in, in a minute. But the the actors, once they were on board, they had quite a bit of input on the script as well. I, I hadn't appreciated that the writing process didn't just finish when you put the script in and then you, you go and shoot it. it it was constantly evolving it is for me I mean I wouldn't say it's always the same for every writer and every show I mean I, I hear lots of stories of actors who are driven demented by writers who blatantly won't change things that could be improved you know and some actors sorry some writers you can get the power to say you know I'm Shakespeare you do every line I think you'd be an idiot there are very very few writers you know television or elsewhere that are so great you wouldn't want to change anything um, the actors Selling stuff that I do, they bring an awful lot. I mean, first of all, you don't often get actors of that caliber to sign on unless they've got some kind of assurance that things they don't like can get fixed. Um, and then when they do come on board through the rehearsal period and beyond, they're looking at the script all the time and commenting on it, and I'm happily changing things to kind of improve it. And they only made it better. I mean, it's a much, much better script after they had a go at it. What kind of suggestions did they make? <clears throat> well, it's really difficult to, because it's. They don't often kind of go for the plot and say, sometimes they do, and say, look, do I have to be quite this mad? Do I have to be quite this hostile or whatever? Um, with something like this, it, it is really about the nuance. And it's kind of like that scene that you've just seen in the original version. They were much more openly hostile to each other. And you think, well, you couldn't imagine they'd be much more hostile than that. And that sort of tells you it. That's probably the right level. They're being very and, heated and in an office just, situation. Mm, yeah, mm. I think women recognise. You also, you also forget how much when you write stuff, how much you don't need to say because the actors yeah. do an awful lot of it. I mean, there was a scene, for example, which we shot. It's the first scene between Ellen and her husband, and she's coming back to tell him that she's got this promotion, that she's got this big contract. And the scene was like two or three pages. And the scene, again, to my shame, only really delivered the notion she's got a husband and they're in love and it's all mm-hmm. going to be fine should have had more to it than that but it was a two or three page scene beautifully performed you know and we cut it in half because it was so evident from their body language and all the stuff that actors do you didn't need a three page scene you know you could do it a lot shorter and so um it's not that you can there's no huge thing that i can point to that was pivotal in terms of the story it's more all the way through that they're just trying to make it 
kind of more truthful and not kind of banging your head, you know, with, with, with obvious stuff. Yeah, and um, Glasgow looked fabulous, and uh, you know, every, if you're from Glasgow, you were sort of spotting all, all the locations, but a lot of thought goes into the locations, and each house has to, 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 to match or fit the, 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 the character. How did you go about choosing locations? Well, we knew that because it was a show about architects, that where people lived would be really important. Um, uh, and that we, we, we were going to foreground people's homes because they were architects and so it was integral to their characters, where they live, what choices they made. And then you do what you do when you're looking for locations for, you know, for any character is where would they live, what could they afford, what would they be doing and then the location manager and the designer and um, location manager goes goes out and discusses with Joe what Joe's brief is. They have a first pass at it. Then the designer and Joe go along and see, well, quite a few places. And then, you know, when they go knocking on doors, basically, don't they? Yeah, they and write letters. Um, so, it. I think who's there were two architects' houses that we used. Didn't we? Was the one with the turning plate? Did that actually belong to an architect? Don't think so. I think it was a designer of some kind. Designer of some kind. That was in the West End. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That great. The library is actually a house. Is that right? Yeah, That's Marble right. House. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was the hardest. That was the hardest location hard to find. Because you're trying to find, um, you know, a place that you've got to you start with a concrete floor because they haven't built it and then it's got to be built. So that that kind of thing was a nightmare to do on kind of film or TV because it costs a lot of money to do. So the build of the library is a combination of real locations, CGI, studio builds and so on. But we couldn't find anywhere in Glasgow kind of a library that was finished. It's already a little bit bizarre that they're building a library because as people point out who's building libraries, they're closing them all down. That's partly why I wanted to do it, but it made it very difficult to find. We found a wonderful place in, was it Aberdeen? I can't remember. Yeah, we and Maggie's. We couldn't afford to go to Aberdeen. So I think it was the art director cycling to work one day who cycled past his house, wasn't it Ursula? Yeah. And uh, she said, why don't you go have a look at this? I went to see it and um, it's uh, well, you've you've seen it. I mean, it looks like it looks like it could be a library. It looks. I mean, uh, how can I put this? Because it's it's obviously it's maybe not not everybody's cup of tea for the kind of house they might want to live in. Because it's very like it's almost like Los Angeles kind of yeah. thing. That, that's mm. what it reminds me of. Um, but it meant that we could get rid of a lot of stuff and not have to do an awful lot of stuff to make it look like a, a, a library. That, I think that was the hardest location, wasn't it? Very very difficult. Yeah, oh, really and also it's very hard to make things look brand new. That was the other thing, because we, we saw a lot of places where, because it's supposed to just opened, you couldn't go to a lot of places, because even five, ten years, this stuff started yeah. to fall off it and, you know, yeah. get worn. You also put a lot, well, Nicole, probably you put more thought into the clothes than, than Joe did. How Joe dare you? Go to sleep while she talks about the clothes. The clothes were very, very Im important to the, the characters, yeah. more so than in a lot of dramas. That's right, because again, they're architects, and when we were doing research about architects, we discovered that architects live in a world where aesthetic decisions are really, really important. So there's no such thing as slinging on some, you know, every single piece of clothing has got some thought behind it. So again, whereas normally in drama, you don't want to draw attention to what people are wearing unless you're you know, you've got a specific moment in mind. This was slightly different in that the characters would have been thinking very hard about what they were wearing. So we had to reflect that. And then what was really entertaining, Jo Slater is a really fantastic costume designer. And she was having a lot of fun with it because of course normally in contemporary pieces, she's sort of making the clothes disappear. But here she got, you know, she got very into um, dressing, uh, particularly the women. Um, and I so tried to stop them. You tried, you <laughs> tried, yeah, you tried very hard to um, to but tone it, it all down. But it, it did add to the characterisation. I, I felt because I, I read an interview with Vicky Fleur where she said that um, she decided to wear clothes that were just slightly tight because this was all about somebody that was trying to hold it all together mm. and, and keep mm. in control. Yeah. I'm not very good at the psychology of costume because I'm all joking aside, it is very important. You know, and the actors have a lot to say about that. And the costume designer, obviously, kind of, you know, Nicole. With that character, I, I really don't like to n notice colours. This is very different from looking to any 
shows that I've done before in that it's much more colourful and much more, it's not very much at night and normally my stuff is much more kind of subdued and I just had, in the end, had to take, not had to, happy to take a back seat because I think the actors combined with the costume design and the producer know more about it than I do. For example, there's a dress that, um, there are lots of things in this that I would never in a million years allow an actor to wear normally, like a dress that's got all these colour blotches on it. And I, I, would, and I would go, oh, really? I mean, because we'll just be looking at that. And, you know, kind of Vicky explained to me that that's the, that's a dress that it takes quite a bit of confidence to wear. And she's someone who's trying just a little bit too hard and she's really trying to push it. We end up seeing that dress about three or four times in the show. Uh-huh. And there are other things like, you know, usually when actors want to wear glasses, um, I nearly always, I always say no. I think Dick Grace got go away with wearing some glasses and things like that. So I kind of just let it go. And and trendy glasses. Yeah, and mad jewellery and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, was I, there not a bit of debate about a particular necklace? Yes. Oh, <laughs> God, yeah. There was a twig. Was there, the there, there was one where she's wearing one. It looks like she's got like a, um, a perch on it. What, Nev's? Um, no, um, no, no, um, more than Christie's. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, if, and in fact, they did a Photoshop with Tweety Pie sitting on her perch. At the end, I stopped seeing it because there was so much of it. You know. Yeah, and of course, um, sorry, this is just quite quite good fun. Is that once a costume is established on a particular story day, you're married to it, you know. So once you get away with shooting someone in a particular outfit one day, if there are other scenes in that day, they've got to wear it again. Otherwise, you've got continuity problems. So we only ever had to sell things to Joe once. <laughs> <laughs> there were times when I saw costumes that there's no way you're wearing that. I said, well, I'm afraid I had it on Tuesday. So you're yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm impressed that you, you managed to make uh, you know, what is, by and large, a, a female story feel so authentic. Maybe apart from the third episode. We've already talked about this. But, you know, that, that, that sort of insecurity and the passive aggression back and forward did you have to work with Nicole on that or did you just get it no I think a writer always has to do that I mean there's some people said you know my god you're a man and you've written two women how could it possibly happen (laughs) no 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 no. (laughs) a lot of people have and you just do because as a writer you're inhabiting people that you don't know all the time and there's this um I think terrible thing they tell writers that you should write what you know which I think is bollocks. I think you should write what you don't know. I mean, you should have, you should go somewhere else. Or at least that's what I want to do anyway. Right. I don't want to do documentaries or social realism. I want to kind of um, pretend to be someone else. And I'm about as far away. Well, in some ways, I'm about as far away from these experiences as I can possibly imagine. You know, um, not only not a woman, gay, no children, no interest in children. So that's obviously why I'm interested in it. I think. Yes. Um, and I think. Um, it's not obviously that, that's there's a lot of people who have the absolute opposite philosophy that you can only arrive at the truth by you know but I listen to a lot of people I listen to Nicole I listen to the actors and the stuff this is a story fundamentally about insecurity which a lot yes. of suspense thrillers are and I know bundles about insecurity that's that clip that you've just seen <laughs> the scariest thing I think is not the two people going at each other it's the fact at the end of it you know, Paul or the antagonist goes out and steals her best friend at yes. work. That's mm. the scariest thing. And that can happen to anyone. she's sitting thinking, are they talking about yeah, it? Absolutely. We've but all she, got that. Yeah. You know. yeah. well, the, the first two episodes were, were, were very much about that. And then the third episode. It was even better, wasn't it, wow. when I got to the third episode? Well, tell me, <laughs> how did Marvin Christie's character learn to hotwire a car? She's, well, she's, she's a very smart architect who knows all about engineering. I mean, these people build houses, so I can absolutely believe that she knows how to hotwire a car without having a scene which Nicole would have preferred, I think. In the first episode, where there's auto mechanic lying around, all day, so, you know, or she happens to go to a lecture about hotwiring cars. I think I've, I've, done, I've done TV series where... I've used, this, I've used this gag twice before where someone hot wires something to get out of it. The previous two times I did it, they were both blokes, so the only time I've got grief is on this one, and I think it's because... Yeah, you've had a lot of grief for this, have you? A tiny bit of grief, a tiny bit of blowback. But I've, I'm completely unapologetic about it because my favourite bit of the show. <laughs> you've, had, you've had two and three quarter hours of people chatting and passive aggression, and, and the office staring competition, I think some people have called yes. it. I just want to have a bit of action. Oh, that. I love staring. I love staring. <laughs> staring is good. Anyway, let, let's, let's throw it out to the uh, audience. Anything you would uh, like to ask or... Uh, comment on maybe in the last episode or other episodes. <laughs> yes. Uh, can I ask a question about the music? Because mm-hmm. um, ah, yeah. I always like to ask about how the music's used and because uh, I make music myself. But uh, mm-hmm. even in the clip, we saw the music was very present yes. and even the, the drama. Could you talk a bit about how you came by that composer and maybe whose decision that was? And then when you were looking at the role of the music, what you thought about? What sounds there should be, and what the what the music, and you know how the how the process went of, of actually finding a composer to end up with a, 
sure. ladle-led and, and what music was, was used? Well, the composer is a guy called Dan Jones, who's um, is becoming has become quite acclaimed. He's done loads of kind of films and TV now. I've worked with him. I think this is either the third or fourth time I've worked with him. So we've had a partnership going back like fifteen years now. Um, I do like the music to be quite present. Um, and I know, that, again, there's quite a lot of arguments in TV nowadays. People are always complaining they can't hear the dialogue or the music's too loud or whatever. Um, too bad. <laughs> I like the music loud. I think you can hear the dialogue. But I you're, can hear but, the dialogue. But, yeah. And sometimes I do have to put subtitles yeah. on, but not for yeah. this one. But, but, but you're never not aware, I think, that the music is doing a job. Mm. Um, you know, Dan Jones, he, he kind of runs the gamut from, he does things, he does sound design. There's a movie out at the moment called Lady Macbeth where you'd be hard pushed to kind of get to the music at all because it's very kind of I'm steady state. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, what he does is we, we, we cut the film and, again, other people are different. You usually have to put guide music on to try and sell the programme to the executives and to myself as well because you can't really tell whether... A scenes at the right length or where you've got the overall balance of drama right until you've got at least a, a kind of stab of what kind of music is going to be and how much of it so you then you give him the, the program with guide music on it and the guide music is really for him not to say do the music like this because the music this is completely different to what was on the guide music it's more to say these are the in and out points i think roughly and this is maybe somewhere in the character that it might be so then he writes the music and then he sends it back, and quite often in the edit you might swap things around, and you might kind of truncate it and do quite a lot of music editing. Um, I suppose it really, really well, you're very, very into music, so you do work very collaboratively, I think, with the composers that you work with, and I think we spend a lot of time, spend a lot of time on the music. It's a very integral, for Joe, there's sort of a couple of key roles that matter to him, sorry, I'm speaking for you as yeah, if you're handling sure. the um, but um, and and music is very much where you're at, isn't it? Yeah. How much time do you have? God, that's a very difficult. Not enough, obviously. I mean, there's there is some orchestral music in that, but not a lot. I mean, you can probably tell if you're a composer, like which bits he's stolen from 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 other stuff and mixed it together. Um, it's weeks, not months. I think it's 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 quite a short time, and Four it's. Weeks. Was it four like weeks? Four or five weeks. Per show, was it? Yeah. And you try and, keep, you try and keep roughly the same amount of music in each episode, and you try not to overburden them, and sometimes you'll compromise, and, you know, it gets easier in a way once the programme's underway, because once he's written, say, the first two episodes, you can use a lot of those cues. He sort of decides on the thematic material, and also you can reuse stuff. Um, but yeah, certainly not enough. It's just quite pushed. So it's going to be someone that you trust because if there's only four weeks to do it, you can't. If you you can't suddenly decide, I don't like this. To me, the composers is like is up there with the actors because the the actors and the composing they're the only two things that I don't know how to do. And the producing, sorry, <laughs> 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 well, well recovered. But yeah. I, can, you know, I can I can point a camera and I and I, and I I started, off, I started off as an editor, so I know how to do all those technical stuff, but honestly, kind of acting and composing are two things that I just don't know how they do it. So you've got to hire the right person and let them do it. And if, it, if, you, if you cast it wrong, you really are. Right, like, so that's a really important part. Um, yes. Um, my question is uh, to you as a writer-director. So um, you've obviously developed the story uh, and you have a certain vision for it as you write it. How much does it change when you're actually on set and the actors are there, and and you're ready to roll. Um, how like are there moments where you shoot a sh scene and it's exactly word for the script and everything you had in mind, and you look at it and you're like, well, actually, I feel like we need to change it. We need to go from a different angle. Like, how much do you actually pre-plan things? Do you have like a full shot list, or are you quite flexible when you're on set? As a director, you don't talk about the script now. I mean, with the, with the script. Um it changes all the way, so I mean, you'll you'll change lines of dialogue and whatever in rehearsal, and you change them on set as well if things aren't working. So that's that's one thing, and that's that's partly the, you know, you're in a privileged position if you're directing your own script because you wouldn't have to do that if you hadn't written it. In terms of the shots, I always do a shot list and a storyboard, so I've got a very clear idea of where the camera's going to be all the time. But that is only like my, I wouldn't say fallback position. It's like a plan, and then when an actor has a better idea then I'm going to throw the plan out the window and, and, and change it. So but you tend to, by rule of thumb, you tend to stick to your storyboard more if it's an action sequence or a visual sequence because the actors don't tend to want to interfere with that so much. If it's a dialogue or character scene, I would do my storyboard or shot list, but I would never show it to the actors because 
you rehearse them and let them do what they want first. And I don't block it and say, can you walk there and say that line? I just let them do it. And quite often, nine times out of ten, they end up doing something that's quite close to the storyboard because a lot of it is just logic and common sense or whatever. And occasionally you'll have a difference of opinion. And sometimes, a bit more often nowadays, because I'm, I'm a bit more experienced about changing stuff, that you can make it up as you go along. For example, there's a, there's a shot in the third episode, I don't know if anyone's seen it, where... Um, terrible cheap effect of a dream sequence and there was a, a very long panning shot where someone comes in the door and you pan round them and they go 360 degrees and you pan all the way around. It's an unusual shot to do for TV, it takes a long time. I didn't know I was going to do that exactly until the day, I just mm. knew I wanted to do something a bit strange and then with that you would say, you'd be around the set and you'd talk to the camera person and say, can you actually light it if we, if we do that, will it take forever? And he says no and then you, you ask the actors if they're, because sometimes if you're doing an ambitious angle you sort of have to get the actors on board because they then have to do... Um, something that is maybe not very natural to them. You're always trying with the actors not to force them to do something untruthful. But I think the trick is if you sort of give them enough time when they're doing what I roughly call their bits, sort of the yeah. character bits, then they'll let you off hook if you want to do something mad. So like for that one, for example, we're following um, uh, Vicky McClaw outside the windows and then the camera keeps panning. You, you lose her for a while and then she comes in the main door. And of course, once we lost her through the windows, she had to kind of kick off her shoes, run around the blind bit, and so that she was there. That's not very realistic, but she was happy to do it because she knew it was a camera trick. Mm -hmm. So I suppose the answer is it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a combination. But you have to keep your mind open to changing absolutely everything, even if it's your favourite planned, clever shot. If an actor can't make it work, it's not. It's just not going to work. And you were writing and directing this, so you you, you have. You know, a relative amount of control, albeit you're, you're mm -hmm. willing to, to take on board mm -hmm. changes as you go along. But what's it like for you if you have written it and handed it over and someone else directs it? Fucking horrible. <laughs> I hate it so much. But only in the sense of um, you have writer directors and you have director writers, right? So you have the writer directors who are not one of those who basically write the script and they hang on to it, limp it like to make sure nothing changes. I'm the opposite, I'm a director who, the main thing I like doing is directing, so I only write scripts in order to direct them, so then I'm very kind of, I'm kind of free with it. Right. On the very few occasions when I've not been, I mean normally I direct everything that I've written, and I've kept, you'll sometimes direct something that I don't write, but on the few occasions when I've written something for whatever reason, not being able to direct it, I'm uh, very dogged the major about that, and I, I, I'm not very proud of it. <laughs> Can I just ask? Oh, yes. I'll come to you in a second. Yes. Yeah, um, did you initially conceive it as a three-part, an hour? No, it was originally going to be a two-parter, and then for reasons that I don't understand, the BBC said, could it be three hours? I think because oh. I guess it's easier to schedule three hours than two, and it wasn't a problem to extend it. I mean, if you've got a two-hour programme, you can probably extend it to three. If they'd said make it four or five or six, I think I would have had a bit of a problem. So the first episode is pretty much how it was written initially, yes. and episodes two and three were originally one hour, so it was originally a lot faster than it turned out to be. Would you have, I was saying to them earlier, I, I would have prepared an extra episode where she went to car mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> like me. Um, or, or yeah, no, it just did it work for you as a three-parter? It just struck me as a bit unusual because you don't really, yeah. I mean, I'm a writer and a massive television fan, but you don't really tend to see that many three parters of yeah. one hour length yeah. of each. And um, yeah, I just thought, I, th I thought maybe another episode, yeah. Well, so initially we'd have a meeting and just by accident we both thought this is a good subject area and then we would talk for like an hour, two hours, like say who's the main character, what kind of things could happen. Then I would go away and I would write something. Then we, it might be, I don't know, two, three pages, I don't know. Yeah. Then we come back and then we talk about it more, and then Nicole would say, well, what about this, what about that? And I'd go away and write again. Well, then we'd do this about 20 times, I guess, over a period of a year or so. It's quite a long time developing this story, until we've got, what you end up from this back and forth is a document that's probably about four pages long for a one-hour TV script. And then you go around to production companies and say, do you like this story? And then we met with a few yeah. And then we picked. We went with Left Bank, who we both worked with before, and then they take this outline, and the outline would probably be. It was a two-parter then, so probably 
most of the document is the description of the first hour and a bit less detail on the second hour. That's sort of how it works. But by now out. it's eight, nine, ten pages. Was it? Yeah. Mm, sure. Mm, okay, yeah. eight, nine pages. And then uh, the, the, the production company pitch it to whichever channel, and the BBC say, okay, we're interested. Then they commission a script, but they commission a script um, on the basis of, I'll give you an example, they, 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 with this, I don't know how many people have seen the whole thing, but in the um, in the final sort of episode, we discover that closer is if you haven't seen it. The the Paula character we find out she in fact she hasn't got a kid. She's been pretending all along, right? So the, the, it's sort of like Virginia Woolf, I suppose. In the original version of the story, um, her child was alive, and in fact it was her child who was good, who pushed Kay off the roof. Um, and so so the BBC's contribution was to say, you know what, the the fight is between these two women. Really, it should stay between these two women, not pluck out this other character. Um, which is perfectly you know, legitimate, and so we changed that. And then once we changed that, they commissioned the script, and you then do, I would do a pass of the script, then Nicole would give her notes, then I would change the script again, that would go back and forward a few times, then it goes to the production company, then they have notes, then you do their notes, then it goes to the BBC, then they do their notes, and then when they're happy, then it goes to the BBC's boss, and then you do their notes, and then you might get a green light. And does it re really resemble what you... <coughs> envisaged in the first place by the time all the notes come back. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. once, once, I mean, I, I think Joe's really very patient with, with, with all the notes, but that is the process in television. I mean, it mm. is, it is, it is like that. Not all the notes are massive, and they're not, they're not like saying change everything, um, but they'll be kind of just, like the actors do, moving things up and down. It's usually to do with things of not believing how characters behave, or um, something's a bit too slow. I mean, you know, in fact, and, and it, goes, it goes all the way through the process. I mean, on this one, we we got the green light for the show on the basis of the first script. So you're writing episodes two and three, knowing that you're making it. And then once we, once we start to go into pre-production, the BBC had quite a lot to say about episodes two and three, and then we had to fix those while we're looking for locations and, and, and so on. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a rolling process. And then it happens again in the, um, in the final edit that you, you put all the stuff together and you still find that things don't work or don't join up, and then you either have to, uh, we didn't on this, sometimes you might have to reshoot stuff or shoot extra stuff, or that's when you get those awful, um, you know, ADRs, automatic dialogue replacement, when you get these really clunky dialogue lines that are on the back of someone's head when you're trying to explain a bit of plot that didn't work. Mm -hmm. you know, so you're even rewriting even in, in the edit suite. It's interesting for a, a new writer, though, you know, I suppose the message is not to get demoralised if you keep getting these... I get demoralised all the time. I, I mean, I can't you? tell you how much I hate it. I mean, but it's, it's, it's like arguing about the weather. But I mean, you, you have to be open to change, I suppose. Um, you have to do change. <laughs> you have to be open to it. I don't know. I mean, does anybody like... I mean, you know, if I was going to say to anybody here, you know, I like the way you told that question, but I think I'd rather you told the question like yeah. a bit angled this yeah, way and maybe yeah. that would be over there. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to kill them, don't you? <laughs> oh, you're making a very good job. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Yes. Um, we just spoke briefly though about the rehearsal period for, for the for programme. I'm just wondering how long would that roughly take? Well, you have such a tight <coughs> Say it's different yeah. for every show though. Yeah. Well, you, I think most shows you don't get very much. You have to fight for it every time because it's, um, it's time with the actors and actors cost money. So I think we had about three days, which was quite generous. Mm -hmm. And I seem to remember we spent most of the three days talking about Brexit because it was a day after the <laughs> So for every 45-minute slot, a new actor would come in and talk for 35 minutes about Brexit, and then we'd do a bit of rehearsal and then whatever. And the rehearsal, again, is not so much... Um, you're not trying to block how the actors move or any of that. Well, everyone's different, but what I tend to do is you're just looking at the script, they read through the script, and it's blatantly obvious when... Usually blatantly obvious when a line doesn't work or something's... or a joke isn't funny or whatever, and then you go away and rewrite it that night. You've also got this thing... Before the rehearsal, you have a, a read-through where all the actors and quite a lot of the crew get together and they read the scripts through from beginning to end. And that's quite like a good rehearsal as well because you hear it and you think, mm, I'm not quite sure about that and so on. That was somebody over here, yes. Um, Nicole, as, as a producer, I was just wondering, you seem to spend a lot of time and, you know, how much time are you actually on set once you've done all the... I think different producers do it very differently. So... Um, I like to be on set, but obviously you can only really do that if things are going incredibly smoothly back at base. And I was really lucky. I have a fantastic line producer 
Claire Carr, and we also were very lucky through various schemes that were around in Scotland, we were able to get um, a, a trainee line producer, but who was already a very experienced production manager who wanted to step up with the step up program. So I had effectively two, two line producers on this. So I was able to go and um, spend annoy time. Annoy me quite a lot. Annoy you quite a lot. Well, <laughs> annoy you on the times that you didn't want me there and then get calls going, where is Nicole? Yeah. <laughs> 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 this was shot last summer in Glasgow. Yeah. That was a terrible summer, but it didn't it look it on there. We were lucky, very lucky. I couldn't believe it because I have a rule that my jacket goes off like around about March, April. And, and I, will not, I will not put it back on until, say, October. And all the crew were laughing at me and sort of saying, well, we'll see how long it takes. <laughs> Middle of August, jacket went back on. Welcome to our world. <laughs> yes, at the back. Um, what about the casting process for the show? Did you have Vicky and Morven in mind when you were writing characters? Or? No, I didn't have... I mean, uh, I used to. I used to have, you know, kind of write for, character, write for particular actors um, and... I got burnt a few times because what often happens is if you um, if you make it really clear that you're desperate to work with a particular individual, whether it's an actor or any kind of crew member, um, some execs will make it their life's mission to prevent you from working with that person. It's sort of a it's a it's almost like a psychological thing. Oh, they, right. Particularly if you're if you're writing and directing it, they've already got it in their mind a little bit sometimes that you've got perhaps too much more power than they'd like because <laughs> writing and directing isn't that common on TV. It's more common in film, so they already think. Mm, is the director really challenging this script enough? <laughs> so if you if, if if as well as that you say, and also I want to write, write it for this actress, they yeah. go they go bonkers. So I've had that situation before. So now I generally don't write it with anyone in mind, and I have to try and keep a much more open mind because you know sometimes also if you if you write it with someone in mind for whatever reason they're not available, it's sort of it can screw you up a little bit in the back of your head. So with this, we there was no one in mind for any of the roles. No. I think possibly. That's not true. I think Siobhan Redmond. I think I did have in mind because I'd worked with her before, and um, but I, I, I wasn't I wasn't familiar so much. She played with the mother. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Um, so with Morvan and Vicky and all the other actors, you you know so, some of the, their work you're already aware of, and some you're not, and you look at stuff. And then I think with nearly all the actors, we didn't do auditions as such. We, you know, you look but at their work knows. and you, you offer it to them, and then you um, you meet them, and then they have, they have to sort of decide that you can't tell they can't tell whether it's going to be a fruitful working relationship just by meeting you, but at least they can get an idea because you know they they've read the script and so they already know there are things wrong with it. Is this person going to fix it or not? Right. Are they going to be a nightmare? Because uh, some some directors won't, you know. Um, but yeah, they they were nearly all offers and they were kind of they're all people I hadn't worked with anyone apart from Siobhan. I don't think. I can see why you chose uh, Morvan Christie and Vicky McClure for, for those parts based on their previous work because Morvan Christie uh, was in the A Ward as the yes, mother of the autistic right. child, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, which I loved. And what I loved about her performance was she wasn't afraid to be unlikable. Exactly. Is, was that a factor? In well, I think that, I mean, th there are actors who, like you said, they want to be liked. Everyone wants to be liked. But to me, I love the kind of actors where. They, it's not they don't care what you think as an audience. They're just they're just doing the part and they're being truthful and they're not doing any tricks to try and make you like them. You know yes. the, the kind of thing you see like in some A-list Hollywood stars where they're kind of smirking a little bit and trying to be nice and and, and whatever. From my own point of view, I think Morven, for example, is incredibly likable all the way through. I love I I love her to bits, but she's not trying to make you like her. She's yes. just trusting the, the the project and the story and and and, and, and whatever. Um, so yeah. And Vicky McClure, um, I thought she was perfect for Paula because of the role that she played in Line of Duty, which is often undercover being this yeah, yeah, yeah. very smiley on the surface, but you know that she's lying. Or see, she's see I, I, wasn't, I wasn't so familiar. I've seen some Line of Duty before I kind of met her up and seen This is England and stuff like that. I think, um, Time. I don't think she's played a baddie either. Um, not that I would necessarily call her a baddie, but you know what I mean, sort yes. of um, the villain for one. Word. Yeah, it was difficult to go back to Line of Duty actually after the replacement. Well, she said no one trusted her in Line of Duty <laughs> after that. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes. Um, so I have another question. Um, you mentioned uh, briefly uh, differences between film and TV. So I know for uh, that a lot of uh, film directors, for example, work with a cinematographer, and that relationship is very integral to. Whereas I know that a lot of TV actually have different directors every time, and it's actually like a producer's yeah. world almost. Mm. Do you have 
um, like a cinematographer or someone that you work with closely, or who would that person be for you if you yeah. had one? Well, it's, it, it is true TV is perceived as more of a producer's medium, writer's medium, let's say, and film is more of a director's medium, they say, although they're converging a bit now over, over the last few years. Yeah, the, um, the cinematographer is very important. Again, the guy who did this uh, is called Nick Dance, and I've, again, worked with him about three or four times. So it just helps. I mean... Do you, do you get to choose, or, or does it just get allocated? Um, it get, well, do I get to choose? I get to propose, and um, I, I couldn't say it's definitely going to be this person. Right. I would say, I really, really want this person. I'd be very unhappy if it's not this person, but that's about <laughs> as far as I can go. Um, and with most of the parts, as long as they've got the CV, you know, yeah. it, it's unlikely, it's difficult if, say, for example, I, I happen to know a DOP who'd only done a short film, for example... I'd have quite an argument on my hands to get it through the various levels of mm. approval that you need. Nick Dance has done lots of telly. He's and a BAFTA award-winning yeah. cinematographer, so I think, I mean, for instance, what as producer you'd be worried about is if someone wants to work with a cinematographer who you know is slow, very slow, mm. and you know that you have to you have to get through your schedule every day, so that might that might make it more difficult to say. Yes, of course, we'd love to have that person. Um, so different different things come into play, but I'd say as a producer, it's really, really important to see if you can, um, you know, support the director in getting the direct, you know, getting the cinematographer that he or she wants because they have such an important relationship. There's such a shorthand, and actually it wouldn't work. I just don't think it would work when you have, you know, uh, an experienced director working with someone he or she just did not get on with. Although, of course, it does sometimes happen on, in TV. And the important thing, though, is... Series. I think time is the important thing, because I maintain that, like, half the job in directing is time management. I mean, I'm not saying that everyone could be Spielberg if they're given weeks and weeks and days to days to shoot stuff, but nearly all the big mistakes I've made as a director is when I've misjudged just the amount of time it takes to do something. So, for example, you could spend, like, half a day of someone jumping out of a window because it's complicated and there's health and safety and whatever, and then if you try to compensate that by rushing an emotional scene, which is technically simple, but you haven't given the actors time to get into it, that's when you get into trouble. And so the DOP that you work with, you know, if it's someone I haven't worked with before, one of the first things I want to find out is how fast they are because I need a certain number of setups a day and you know I can't spend forever getting the light beautifully exactly right you know although it is I think beautifully lit um, that's why I want to work with is trying to get someone who's kind of works has got a good pace and can make it look nice how long did it take to shoot 43 days 43 days and, and then the edit um, um, three months yeah, four months well, I mean, because we do di there are different processes involved in the editing but yes Sometimes about it, four weeks in it. What happens is when you're shooting, the editor is at, back in London putting together an assembly. Mm -hmm. You see that every week. And so it's already in a sort of shape by the time you finish and then you do the fine cutting over the period of two or three months, I suppose. And anything you can tell us about what ended up on the cutting room floor? Oh, it, cutting yeah. room floor. Well, mostly uh, bits of scenes. I mean, one of the things is that there can be difference of opinions about overall pace. And, you know, I'm not in charge of... You know, I have a strong view about stuff, but in, in the end, it's not like everything has to be the way I want it. Everyone, you know, there's, there's a negative view. And some people might like it a little bit faster and a choppier, and some people like it a bit more slow. Kind of slow. Um, Would that be you, Nicole? <laughs> Sometimes, yes. I mean, I could stand with it being a little bit faster, but then, but then the danger is one of the dangers, if you ever written and directed You had a car chase in it. Though. I had a car, well, yeah, I had, kind of. I, I had a bit of car actually. Um, but yeah, the, what, what got cut out? Anything big? Well, some of the emotional scenes between Morven and Richard, like in the kitchen and at the house. The and husband? When, yes. Mm. Right. Um, I don't have we, or because we were chatting about that beforehand, have we already said here that, that sometimes. Joe would write this beautiful emotional scene and then the actors would perform it and yeah. you have have we discussed that? Am yeah, I repeating yeah. myself now? Um or Joe is well anyway, so so stuff like that, emotional stuff, um we've got What tends to get cut is stuff that doesn't really serve the story because there was something in um, I remember reading an article in The Guardian the other day about Line of Duty. It's a wonderful show, I think. I think it's brilliantly written. But there was they they wheeled out these um, novelists 
saying that, oh, we'd never get away with that in crime fiction, you know, all these kind of plot holes and whatever. And that's because television makes you, you have to get on with it. It's, very, it's really weird when you're watching it. You might read it on the page and think, oh, that's a beautifully nuanced blah, blah, blah. When you watch it, you don't care. All you want to care is like what happens next. And so you write differently when you're writing for the screen than if you were writing for the page. I think that was I think that was the yeah that's what the article was saying that you could get away with certain kind of uh, plot holes that if you stopped and thought about it you would think oh well that wouldn't really happen in this life or why didn't she say X that doesn't really occur to you when you're watching a good film or a good TV thing because the pace carries you along but that means then that you don't you've got to be careful about having scenes which aren't moving the story forward because then you've got time to think about, hang on a minute, what did they yeah. say back then? Yeah. All, sorry, sorry no, I was just going to say there's one example of something that uh, that we lost and that is, I think it's, it's quite interesting. Originally what Joe had written is that um, when uh, Ellen, Morgan Christie, discovers she's pregnant, she doesn't tell her husband. She tells her bosses first and what uh, Kay, her best friend, says to her is, you know, is your husband over the moon? And she says, yes, he's over the moon. But she only tells him in the next scene. And I think Joe felt that it would just be interesting. No, no, that was the BBC who made us do that. No, well, no, to change it. The yeah, BBC made us yeah, change it. Yeah. No, no, Joe thought it would be an interesting take on the character that she might tell her bosses first and then her husband. But when, and we'd obviously shot the scene. And then when we saw it in the edit, the BBC said, it makes her unsympathetic. It makes her what? unsympathetic. It makes her unsympathetic that she's telling her bosses first. I think that's better because you're kind of working out. Who, you know, I think there's a, there's you're going back and forward the great areas of the characters. There's a great terror in television, and I think in film as well. I think this will be the first five minutes of something. They're really worried that you're not going to connect oh, with the main character. And, I, yeah, and it comes down to this thing of likability, not likability. Yes. I thought it was very funny that the circumstances were such that she tells she's pregnant to her bosses and they say oh what are you going to tell Ian and she says oh he's over the moon and then she tells her husband as if she's telling him for the first time and then at the end of that he says when are you going to tell work and she says oh tomorrow and I thought it was kind of funny and charming but I think it was felt not unreasonably by some people that that made her I thought it made her interesting but some people thought it made her unsympathetic in the sense that it was all this thing about it's, it's the first time that obviously she's found out that she's pregnant and they didn't want any kind of questions about it like oh, is, is she a liar is she white doesn't you know it's a weird thing to, to, to describe I would have had it obviously the way that I wrote it but I don't mind it this way <laughs> Anybody else? yes so what's next for what we're going to see um I've got a film coming out later this year which is called B&B which is um got no women in it at all um, <laughs> and we're working on another psychological thriller with the same company who made this uh which we haven't done all the story yet, but for it, TV, yeah, which uh, we hope also a three-parter. Yeah, so I, we might get that off the ground next year, but we might not. I mean, the proportion of stuff that you develop to what actually gets made is sadly tiny. Has there been pressure to um, have a sequel to this? I mean, to me, it is a complete piece, but you know, the number of times you have complete pieces that Broadchurch that they bring back yeah. for a, another series, and you think. Maybe they should have just stopped the first one. Well, I'd say not serious pressure. I mean, no one for the BBC has rung up and said, why don't you use serious job? People have talked about it and said it, but to me it's blatantly obvious that they couldn't be with this. Not that they're not... I mean, they're not dead at the end, but I think I've said that you would need either a lot of plastic surgery or amnesia to get those two characters <laughs> in the same room together because they ended up in <laughs> such a terrible you know, situation. Um, it'd be quite an interesting problem to write yourself out of, but no, I think that's... Um, you know, it was, it was very much designed as a beginning, middle, and I think there's a, there is a taste for that in TV as well, although the industry is much more geared, it's much more easy to sell something that's got where you can return, because that's the business model for TV, isn't it? So yep. for, for stuff to Return keep going and going series. and going. Mm. But I, as a viewer, I, I, I don't want to sit down and think, oh, good, I've got 100 hours of this to find Sometimes out what's happening. Sometimes you want to know, know yeah. there's an end in yeah. sight. Yeah. And it's only two weeks away. You know? Yeah. Yes? Did you go into production with an edit in mind? An editor, do you mean? No, an air date. Oh, an air date. Uh, no. no, no, we not didn't. No, in fact. You don't usually have an air date when you're shooting. No, you? with drama, I know that with a lot of shows, they have air dates and longer running shows. They have obviously got seasons. So, but we had no idea when we were going to transmit. They didn't tell us until about what a month before something like that. I mean, the thing is, it drove us mad for a bit because we would really like to know when we're going out. But then you realise why they're doing it because you know th this show did quite well in terms of viewers and, ba and buzz and whatever. But if we'd been on a day earlier, we would have been up against Broadchurch, and mm -hmm. no one might have never heard of us. So it, you know you can see why they do it. Yeah. 
How did you start off in industry, Bobby? Um, I did a physics degree, um, which is why I know women can hop when I can't. And that was terrible. So I, um, I applied for a, a film course at university. So I did a, like a year post-grad on that. And then I was an editor for a while and kind of writing in my spare time. And then eventually um, I did a couple of short films. Uh, in fact, one of my short first short films was shot here in Glasgow, which was written by that lady over there, back there, Liz Lockhead. Liz Lockhead. Um, mm. Which was back in 1994, believe it or not. And then after that, um, a few years after that, I got some scripts on TV and then they allowed me to direct. And the directing thing came last because the people will take a risk on a writer because you're not wasting that much of people's money. But if you go on to a floor directing and you get it wrong, you're wasting tens of thousands of people's money. So it, it, it took a bit of a long time to, to get there. How did that first script, how, how did you get that first script to you? Was that a long, difficult process? Um, well, it was very circuitous. What happened was... Um, I'd written a treatment for um, a series about modern day vampires, which was uh, before the kind of Buffy and right. True Blood wave. So it was very um, uh, stupid thing to write, really. <laughs> um, and it went to a company, and uh, they were kind of interested in it, but they wanted to try me out on something before they developed it. So they, they were doing a show, this about 20 years ago now, called This Life, which was about lawyers. Yeah. It was sort of like a lawyer soap kind of thing. Yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. And they offered me um, a script to write on that. And then once I did the first script, they gave me the second script, and then they allowed me to direct on it. But interestingly, they wouldn't allow me to direct the scripts I'd written. They would only allow me to direct the scripts I hadn't written. So again, it was the kind of thing, we don't want you doing both, because that's a bit... And then after I'd done that, they allowed me to write and direct the the vampire thing. But I wouldn't have got the vampire thing without the lawyer thing. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, I did an English degree and then I also went to film school um, well the same film school that that's in fact where we met Um, the late 50s in the late 50s back when the dinosaurs roamed and then I started off um, in commercials and worked in commercials for a couple of years and then I but all the time trying to not be in commercials trying to get out and I did a lot of freelance reading work um, so that it's, it's coverage it's when uh, you evaluate people's um, unsolicited material scripts um, and you write reports on them for companies that make fiction uh, make drama and I did a lot of that and finally got a job in at uh, an independent production company and this is long time ago this was the, the 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 first the dawn of independent production companies um and we now take them for granted um and i sort of got the opportunity to really train with them so i produced um kids programs and i was you know i did a I, I did, was a series producer on some of those and I devised one of those and wrote the scripts for one of those I think on one that I also series produced and script edited drama for them and then I got a job with Scottish Television um, uh, developing drama for them and that lasted and then I worked for a, uh, another company after my when my first child was born and I took some time off and started to work in much shorter bursts, taking jobs as and when and sort of combining it with um, uh, mothering, as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, uh, then I, I've worked freelance for about 10 years now, I think. Well, maybe 20 years, yeah. It's interesting that both of you have s- sort of scooted about through various disciplines. Is that what happens in, in your industry? Uh not always. I mean, we went to we did the same film course many, many moons ago, and there were twelve of us, and quite a few of us are still in contact. You know, we made quite strong friendships then. There was one guy who was on that course who wrote and directed some low-budget films for Channel Four within a few years of doing that course. And for some people, it takes longer. I mean, I can't tell you how much it how so it's a real combination of random stuff yeah. and just plugging away. Yeah. And some people get there earlier than others. Um, but I, I couldn't tell you why one script people like and one don't, or programmes or, or whatever. It's just, um, it's, it's very hard to analyse. 
And this film that you're making it, writing and directing? It's, it's done now, so yes, so Spin Shot is coming out. And, and how different is that from a TV experience? Because you, you presumably don't have as many hours for a start with a, with a Um It depends. This was a low-budget film, so it was, we're talking like um, £700,000, which is less, which is about half as much as you'd get for an hour of this. Yeah. So, and you know, for, right. for three times as much. So it's a lot less money. But the, the trick is that people are working for a lot less money, so mm-hmm. people people are getting paid, but not very much. Um, the process is very much the same because I try and I Do try you have and more control. There's less notes from yeah. various. Yeah, there yeah. are. There's, there's less script layers because yeah. again, you know, you can't really dick around with people's scripts if you're not paying them that much money. So yeah. <laughs> you couldn't tell people to bugger off. What happens with film is you write the script and then sources of finance come on board based on whether they like the script. So they won't actually give you the money until they like the script. Right. So I suppose you're doing, maybe you're doing the same work, but you're doing it on spec and you're doing it more like um, trying to guess what it is they don't like about it. Because it's not they're going to sit down for two hours and tell you how to fix your script. You go to a lot of distributors or finance entities and they, they don't want to buy it. So you know there's something wrong with it. So you try and fix it. So uh, I wanted to ask about that. Once it's made, the distributing process, how, how do you go about that? In films, again, I don't know a lot about films. I've only been involved in a couple of them, but um, you can either get, sometimes you can get a distributor on board before you make it, right. or sometimes you get them after you've made it. If you're making a very cheap film, you might as well make the film and then get a distributor afterwards, which is what we did. You know, we, we made the film, we had funding from uh, Creative England and Film Wales and some private finance, and so we made it for the small pot that we had. And then we went out and got a distributor, and they'll give it a, like a tiny art cinema release, you know, right. um, later on in the year. An arts festival. Mm, yeah. Exactly. What's it called? What's the film called? B and B. B and B. Well, we'll look out for that. That'll be next year. No, it'll be uh, Septemberish this year. Oh, this year, right? Good. Please come back in again. Yeah, come in again. Um, <laughs> this is a question for Nicole. Um, how does it work then? You being a producer, and you said you were freelance. Do people come to you with a script idea for a series, and then whether, when you like it, you would go and use your contacts to try and get it made? Well, so it depends very much which producer and where they work and what they do. So I, I work um, on my own, and I would either develop ideas with a particular writer, which I would then take to a because I don't have my own production company, I would take it to a bigger production company, well, not, you know, just to take it to a bigger production company to collaborate with. I would not go directly, well, it's not entirely true. You could take it directly to a broadcaster, but then you become, you know, you get a job on your own show and you don't retain any of the IP. Um, So you have to sort of balance. Do you have a group of people that you tend to write anyone could rock up with an idea but obviously I think you know people tend to make relationships at various points in in their careers and they're kind of going well this is someone I really like to work with and because I think really good relationships sort of develop organically sometimes um, and sometimes you just meet someone and really hit it off with them yeah. and, um, and I know because any project is can be two or three years of your life you really have to love it um, because it's a hell of a long time something I was going to say as well though because I know this is a guru event and people getting in and whatever yeah. so if, <clears throat> I didn't believe this when people told me at the time but it, it is honestly true it's, it's much better to try and make something because I spent a long time writing scripts and thinking you know my genius is going to be discovered and someone will ring me up and say okay we're going to make you do that and that does happen of course but it's happened to a vanishingly small percentage and I think I really wish that like 10 years before I did I'd got it you together to make short films and actually yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's what you that's what you need to do and it's very hard because I'm although having said that I'm a director primarily I've got more of a writer's personality which I like to be on my own and I'm quite antisocial yeah. and all that kind of stuff and that's the worst kind of combination you need to get out there and, and work with other people and get something made and show it to people and and when you say get out there and make it show it to people who do you show it to I mean if you're s- sort of on your own and don't know where to start well it's on uh, online a lot of the time now because when we were starting out the the technology wasn't even available so in order to make a short film it was really quite complicated Mm. Um, but now anyone can you know you can shoot a short film on your telephone I think the challenge challenge now is getting people to see it because when when when, when we were doing it we made short and we made a short film with Nikki as well um, shortly after I did the one with Liz and if it was a short film 20 years ago 
that was significant just by of itself because you had to get all this equipment yeah. now and, and people would look at it now because everyone can do it i suppose the challenge which i don't, don't know so much about is how do you get someone to watch it and to, you know get the likes and all that kind of stuff yeah. and I'm, I'm facing that as well with the the movie that i've just done because we don't have a huge pr budget yeah. it's all about social media and getting people to talk about it and it's a quite a different game yeah
I try and protect, I'm very free with the actors, with, with the dialogue and their emotional journey, I can try and do whatever I can. But if stuff impinges on, like, my bit of fun, mm -hmm. that's when I try and, that, 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 that's when I fight back. So with the, um, like, and it wasn't, I mean, the, the, the hot wire in the car, that was one thing that people had, people had lots of problems in the last episode about following certain leaps and, of logic and jumps and, and, and whatever. And all you, the thing I took from that, um, I mean, I had to I had to go on BBC Breakfast, which I've never done before live television, both on, I think it was the morning of the last episode, and they somehow persuaded me to follow the social network Twitter feed about it that night. So I got interviewed, like, half an hour after the programme finished, and you watch all this abuse coming through <laughs> or whatever. And There's a great little video you've got on your phone. I'll show you my favourite bit of abuse, which is very, very funny. Um, I'll pass it around later. Um, and... You know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, that could have crushed me. Now it's water off a duck's back because I think, you know, all I would say to any of those people is, like, you try it. Yeah. What, 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 I would, what, what I would take it from it, with a, with a lot of what happens with with Twitter and that kind of response, is it's become quite a lot of lazy journalism. What happens is there's maybe a 1,000, 2,000 people on Twitter who are watching the programme with one eye and thinking of clever things to say on Twitter at the same time. They're not my viewers, really, yeah. because... And then it's magnified by being reported in the paper. Exactly, then the, the, the papers pick it up consensus. as the news, as if that's, they, are, they are not a focus group, they are people are doing a particular kind of... They're the quite important. The focus group, actually, I think, is the Goggle Boxers. Oh. Yes, oh, they, yeah. were yeah. Yeah. they were very good. I watch them watching it. And they, they, they <laughs> what, I, what I did learn from that whole thing, what I would do, um, which I've not done on TV before, we did it on the movie that I've just done, is to get a focus group. And I think a focus group of 10 or 20 people, ran, properly random people, will pick up stuff that is, and those you have to listen to. Because it's, but it's all about getting like either an invested party who understands you and knows what you're doing, or someone who's really random, and then you can you know, learn something from it. Yeah. Um, thanks very much for all your questions. We, we have, have to wind up now, but um, maybe we could get the two of you to sum up. So we've learned that you have to be um, thick-skinned, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Apart from that, you know, what would you say from what you've learned in your career? What advice would you pass on to somebody starting out now? Don't give up. It's a stamina game. That's the, yes, yeah, that it's, it really is a stamina. It's just, you know, because you think, oh, maybe I'm not doing, you know, doing the right thing or I keep on getting this wrong. But the thing is, you're doing it. If you're doing something rather than nothing, you're already way ahead of yeah. a lot of people who are just talking about it. I've got a tiny wee comment. All right, which then. Is yes, that, um, I was trying to remember when I was lucky enough to read the first episode, just you and I have friends, and you know, uh, we're interested in each other's writing and we're just friends anyway. It's nearly three years ago that I read your first episode oh, of The Replacement. Yeah. Of the replacement. And I remember what I said, you were away in Ireland and um, I, I was reading your, your script, and uh, I remember texting you and saying, Oh, it's brilliant. They'll be on the phone to you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I'm and saying... Three this. years it later. Was yeah. almost three years. It was three yeah. years ago in October. And that was a finished, you know. So you must have been working on it three years ago just now. Yeah. 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 It's and not that's, not, that's not nothing in time. Yeah. Terms, is it? But high praise for Liz Lockett. Thank you. But listen, can I thank you for taking it all in such good heart as well, um, Joe <laughs> and uh, Nicole. And I'm glad you all enjoyed the replacement. Thank, thank you. you.